Welcome to Moot. Um, tonight we have Martin Newell from Catholic Worker Hackney coming to talk to us a bit about community and pacifism, perhaps, and maybe lots of other things as well. We'll see how it goes. Um, over to you, Martin. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So, so. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm aware that might be might have been whispering in conversations because I'm in a church. So if I am whispering, tell me to speak up. Um, yeah, uh, someone was just asking me where I live. I live in living in the Catholic Worker House in Hackney, not far from here. Um, and Catholic Worker, just a bit brief background about the Catholic Worker movement, started in 1933 in New York, uh, mainly by Dorothy Day and also Peter Morin. Peter Moran said he did, he did the talking and Dorothy Day did the work, anyway. Um, basically started as a newspaper. Uh, Peter told Dorothy to start a newspaper to, as he said, explode the dynamite of Catholic social teaching. This is Depression era, America, New York. Um, and he had a program of action, um, houses of hospitality uh, for the poor, uh, the newspaper. Um, communal farms, so the unemployed at that time goes to the unused uh, land and, and finds some work and somewhere to live and a mini to life again. And uh, what he called round table discussions for the clarification of thoughts, which I think was basically arguments, you know, or discussions perhaps that we might like we might have tonight. Um, and uh, there was no plan, but the newspaper started um, and soon people came looking for the house of hospitality, looking for somewhere to sleep, look at, look, and others wanting to help, and it just kind of mushroomed from there, really. Uh, Americans have this kind of uh, can-do, I'll, I'll, I'll do something attitude, they don't wait to be asked. Um, so that's kind of how it started. Um, there's about between 150, 200 houses and communities in the US now. There's three here in England and about 10 in Europe. I guess we're trying to sort of spread it in, in Europe, really. Um, we talk about sort of three main things of Catholic worker life, community, hospitality, and resistance. I come back to community in a bit, because it's a bit of a, to use a pun, a moot point, but anyway. Um, uh, but hospitality, as I said, houses of hospitality for the poor in, in sort of Catholic tradition. We talk about the works of mercy, Matthew 25, you know, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, um, drink to the thirsty, visit the sick, etc. So, Catholic worker communities, if you, if you like, are, are based in houses of hospitality as places for the works of mercy. Um, uh, and the works of mercy, there's a, there's a kind of another part of the works of mercy, which uh, from the Catholic tradition is called the spiritual works of mercy, which involves things like. Um, uh, correcting uh, wrongs and um, instructing the ignorant and things like this, which if could be seen can be seen are seen in as part of the political work, the resistance, so the resistance to injustice and violence as the what we're trying to get rid of when we're trying to work for peace and justice is injustice and violence. So that's resistance to those things. Um, And I guess the community as a theme, is, I say community, hospitality and resistance. So you could say 
communities of hospitality and resistance. I think you know communities take different forms. Um, we have houses, and we're trying to form community among those of us who, or we are a community in practice, of very, in various ways, of those of us who are trying to live out this way of discipleship. And we're also trying to build community with the poor. I think that's a, a crucial part of of what it means to be a Catholic worker, to 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 live with, be with the poor. How that works out in practice for us in London, um, we've got two houses, a farmhouse on the edge of London near Rickmansworth and the house where I live. We live with um, refused asylum seekers, people who are destitute, they're not allowed to claim benefits and they're not allowed to work. Um, obviously, yeah, basically every other person in the country has some recourse to work or to government help, but these people have nothing. Um, and it's, it's very challenging reality to live with people with nothing. Um, it's not easy. Uh, part of the Catholic worker philosophy as well, kind of another traditional Catholic value or practice, if you like, voluntary poverty. And um, yeah, I've said before, yeah, well, my personal experience, uh, sometimes the, I think the way voluntary poverty manifests, po the way poverty manifests itself for most people in this country is, you know, what's the phrase, social exclusion. And I, I certainly ex at times experience um, the difficulty of associating with people who have money that I don't have. On the other side, then, uh, on the other side of this yawning gap is the guests in our house who have even less than I do. So it's, I'm c kind of somewhere in between this sort of yawning gap between the, the haves and the have-nots, to use a phrase. Um, so we're trying to build. I think primarily the, thing, the focus is on community with the poor and that our community comes from that common focus. Um, and, and that's not easy, especially we're refugees, we've got a cultural divide. Most of the guests in our house are Africans, sometimes I'm the only white man in the house. Um, only English, so the language divide, only perhaps the only person with English as the first language at times. Um, as well as the yeah, divided history in a way um, that I'm, yeah, British. Uh, a lot of our guests come from former countries of the British Empire. We went around, you know, taking over their countries, uh, taking the best land and the best jobs and the best homes. Um, and so now often they're coming back here uh, and end up with the worst jobs and the worst homes, I guess. Um, so that's kind of my daily reality. We also run, a, from Dorothy Day House where I live, we run a community cafe three days a week and a soup kitchen on Sundays. And what we're trying to do there is, it, we see that as part of the hospitality work. We're welcoming people into our space and, and very much seeing it as uh, trying to do what Jesus did in terms of sharing his table with all comers and to break down the barriers that divide people, particularly in the cafe, it's a place where we try to create an environment where people, all, all social groups and classes are welcome. It's not a ghetto just for the poor, that yeah, all, all groups come, hopefully, and we're trying to um, build the links between those, between the, those that come. 
um, but still very much focused on uh, that, the, the idea of welcoming people to share our table. And that's, that's in a way more evident at the, the soup kitchen, which is called the urban table, because I suggested to the other person whose idea it was at the time that it might be called the open table, as in, you know, welcome people to share our open table. And he said, yeah, urban table, that's great, we'll call it urban table. <laughs> so I just thought, okay, we'll leave it at that. Um, um, and very much, again, when we're running that, we try and, as with simulating the cafe, we're, we're not just sort of working in the kitchen and serving the food, hiding in the kitchen. But the idea is that once the food is prepared, that we go out and we sit down and we eat the soup and drink the tea and and listen and chat with the guests who come and try to to build a community in a sense with them. I think I think that that is evident in the, the work that we do, the relationships that we that we have with people. Um, that's the hospitality work we do. The resistance work that we do is mainly focused on um, British nuclear weapons, um, the arms trade, and the wars that we've been involved in in, in recent years, Iraq up till recently, and Afghanistan still currently. There's actually an army recruitment showroom in Hackney now. So we've started doing regular um, candlelit prayer vigils with placards and banners outside the, the army showroom. <clears throat> as well, so that's that they're kind of our main focuses. Um, we also, uh, I was going to say, uh, I was going to say that we also went down to the the G twenty when they were in Custom House. Um, it's quite a story there actually, because uh, we just there's a, there was a kind of a. Well, you know about what happened near here the day before the G20. Um, Kieran O'Reilly came down, was down here for that, that group, and Chris Goodchild was also down here at that time. But we went on the day, and our, our aim was to get as near as possible to the actual G20 meeting and to pray, just to pray. I had done this before at the G8 in Scotland, and this it was a very powerful experience. A lot of people, that other other people that I'd encouraged to do the same uh, I found it a very powerful experience. So we went down to Custom House, which is an area that I know where the Excel Centre is, and managed to get to this park at the side of the G20, uh, the Excel Centre. Um, and um, we were just sitting there praying when some couple of coppers come along and said, you know, what are you doing? We've had reports that you've got plans of the Excel Centre on the table. And, no, we're just praying. It's just like a prayer sheet, you know. OK, OK, they went away. And then the the, uh, the anti-terrorist police turned up with um, big um, machine, no, big I don't know, we call them not machine guns, but whatever they are, big big guns and some pistols strapped to their thighs. I think there were eight of them and three of us, and um, some rosary beads and um, <laughs> a Bible and uh, uh, yeah, let's sort of you know, stand up, don't move, tip your hands out your pockets. Um, they were serious, you know, and uh, they said, you know, we, we've had intelligence that you've got plans for the Excel Centre. I guess they didn't believe the other guys, really. They just, well, well, if they are praying, that must be dangerous because, I don't know, who prays? Muslims, maybe? I don't know. Um, so they searched our bags. The guy said to me, you know, have you got anything sharp in your bag? I'm like, I don't think so. Have you got anything sharp in your bag? Not as I remember. You better remember what... Or I'll throw your stuff all over the floor. 
said, well, you, you just have to do that because I can't, you know, say what isn't or isn't true. I say what, I don't remember. Um, yeah, so we were pretty, that was pretty extreme experience. And they went away and we managed to, uh, we had a peace flag and a, a blank banner and a marker pen. So there's a quote from Dorothy Day that um, our problems stem from our acceptance of this filthy rotten system. And uh, I wrote that on the placard and we just stood at the edge of this park. And later on the television, we sort of saw the inside of the conference hall, which I've been in before, but, you know, and it's just a normal exhibition centre. And yeah, we were the nearest protesters <laughs> to the uh, to the actual conference and praying there as well. And um, having got through these kind of police lines um, and just standing on the, the edge of the road opposite the uh, the Excel Centre. Um, and Kieran was saying it's a bit like being in the Soviet Union, you know, the best you can do is to get a little demonstration here and a little demonstration there and before you get carted off or moved on. Um, so that was kind of one kind of quite extreme experience. The, the territorial support group, the anti-terrorist police, are the same people that shot the John Charles de Menezes in Stockwell and the same guys that knocked over the paper seller down here. They were also territorial support group. Um, so Kieran was pretty nervous. I hadn't really realised, I guess, <laughs> but, um, at the time. But that, I guess that's the kind of reaction you can expect if you stand out, um, don't take the normal path. Um, and they also, interestingly, they said, why didn't you join the main demonstration? But we wanted to pray. We wanted to have a Christian witness down there. Um, and uh, that's, that's why we went and did our, did our own thing. Um, yeah, I should have said at the beginning, if anybody's got any questions or anything to please do pipe up. Um, trying to think. Um, I guess uh, I said, talking to someone earlier, the Catholic Worker Movement these days also could say, uh, one way I put it is, it's you know, Catholic in, in, ver in various senses. There's quite a lot of people who are Catholic worker, but not Catholic, if you like. Um, Catholic, pacifist, communitarian, anarchist. And it's asked to explain that. So um, basically, I would say Catholic Christians trying to follow Jesus. Um, to me, Jesus was a pacifist. You know, he said to Pilate, "I could have called on legions to defend me, but but my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. And kingdoms of this world have armies to defend their borders and prisons to enforce their laws and stuff like and police forces." Um, uh, and, you know, he, rather than protect his own life, which I guess we believe as Christians that, you know, it's the most important person who ever lived, I guess, um, he chose to, to sacrifice his own life and die on a cross rather than use force to protect himself. And the last words he said to his disciples before, before he was taken away, before he was crucified, but, yeah, put away your sword. Um, so we follow that tradition, um, and try and put that in practice in our own lives. And the anarchist bit, um, is also, I, I, I kind of struggled with this myself because this is the Catholic worker tradition, but I think I'm anarchist in, this, in a similar way to which I'm pacifist, which is to say it's an ethical position rather than a political program. 
it's not saying we must do away with government and smash it all up. That's, that's definitely not, I can't see that being a good approach anyway. But it's basically saying, as it said, that governments require armies, prisons, police forces to enforce the, the, their power and it's oppressive and it's also it's not Christian. You know, I think you know, Jesus, you know, do, do not judge, for example. And um, so refusing to take part in the structures of government as a personal ethical position in a similar way, refusing to take part in uh, the, the structures of the military or, or uh, armed conflict or whatever, um, as a pacifist position. Um, and communitarian because I suppose it's in a positive way that's the alternative if we, if we can't organise ourselves if government is not an acceptable way of organising society we have to organise ourselves in communities um, and another word that's used uh, kind of someone said is personalism someone personalism is a Christian version of anarchism um, I think has a, a lot to do with personal taking personal responsibility for, for things and not leaving it to government, not leaving it to the church, structures or hierarchies or companies or whoever it is to sort out our problems for us but taking personal responsibility and I guess the sort of houses of hospitality and the resistance work that we do is, is an example of that and I'm working on a small scale on the personal scale rather than on trying to organise big programmes so Catholic worker communities and houses are, you know, are we're not a big corporation. There's no headquarters of the Catholic Worker Movement. Every community in house is independent, um, and yet there's a network that it's real and it and goes on. Um, so that that's I think that's how that works out uh, in practice. And I guess the pacifist thing uh, is interesting. I think Catholic workers have have learned a lot about that in practice. For the obvious means, you might think like taking part in non-violent direct action, which is a big part of the Catholic worker tradition. Um, starting in the 50s and most famously in the 60s, uh, a Catholic worker was the first person to burn uh, a draft card publicly in the U US in resistance to the Vietnam War. Catholic workers were prominent in the draft board raids and they, burnt, they, they destroyed uh, draft files in offices where they were getting people to join the army in the US. Um, and the experience of confronting power, confronting the police, confronting the courts, being in prison, uh, as an experience of, of non-violent resistance to injustice and violence. Um, but also in the work with homeless people, um, I had an experience a few weeks ago, we had two of the guys that would be of concern to us in our soup kitchen, were both there early and hardly anybody else was there and straight away I was like, hang on a minute, this isn't good. And one of them was drunk and he's okay when he's sober but not when he's drunk. The other guy just can't stop himself saying things to anybody. Um, and I, had to, I said to them, if there's any trouble between you two, you're both going to have to leave. And the other guy told me to fuck off, basically. Um, uh, and I, I thought, well, if it, and he just said, no, I respect you, you're, I like you, you know. I was like, well, if he's going to say that to me, who he says he respects and likes, what's he going to do to other people? So I said I, he had to leave, he was refusing to leave, and the kind of crowd started building up, and he was saying, the other guy said something, and he was like, I've got tools, I've got tools. I'm like, okay, so he's saying he's got a knife in his bag. 
I said, are you, what are you going to do to me? He said, nothing. I respect you. I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he's still not leaving. Um, and this crowd's building up behind him and he's sort of trying to get people on his side. And the other guy was black and he was white and he was like, like no, it's these black guys. And I'm like, what's something to do with colour? Um, anyway, in the end, I, I just kept following him around and sort of saying, you've got to leave, you've got to leave. I, I managed to be calm. I managed to be persistent and sort of not nervous, uh, not 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 angry as well but eventually I just, I just said, I said uh, okay we're closing you know everybody's got to leave we're closing and that worked everybody went outside um, and um, uh, we reopened half an hour later after a bit of a debrief uh, what, amongst ourselves who was running the, running it and what, what had happened and what to do and he came back the guy who was asking to leave came back half an hour later and after that and apologised it was pretty good pretty big but it's really stressful, but I guess I'm just like, telling that story because I think a lot of Catholic workers have made the connections between dealing with that. Because so, they were both, both these guys were saying to me, we refuse to leave, but if, uh, if you want us to leave, call the police. And I'm like, I don't want to call the police. You know, I don't want to get the police involved. Um, it's not going to do these guys any good. It's not, you know, um, it's not a solution. And uh, it would also harm our relationship, I think. Um, so an alternative to calling the police to actually deal with it ourselves and we managed to do it, it was pretty difficult but we managed to do it just a couple of pretty difficult guys uh, I've worked with homeless people for a long time and yeah, these are pretty difficult guys um, so yeah, there's a quite, I think there's quite a lot that's come out of that Catholic worker experience in terms of these um, conflict resolution programs to go on now. Some of that comes from the experience of Catholic workers in the States that then was transferred to uh, peace groups and, and similar groups in the States and then has come over here from there. Uh, there's a lot of practical learning that's come out of it, how to deal with situations non-violently, um, how to get people to do what you want <laughs> without using force. Um, yeah, the community side of it, I guess, one of the, I was talking to someone earlier today about it. Um, I think in the US, it's harder to live on a, a different way of life. It's harder to perhaps work with the poor um, without living in an intentional community. And I think it's a much more individualistic society as well. So that I think it, people more naturally gravitate to intentional communities in the US because of the the total absence of community elsewhere and the lack of opportunities to work for justice and work for the poor, work for peace outside of that. Here we found um, we've got a kind of, a, I feel like a dispersed community of Catholic workers uh, in London um, and people who support the work that we do. Uh, we found it harder to find people to, want to actually do it full time and live in long term and who really believe in the in the whole philosophy uh, that people want to do it for a short time, people want to do it as volunteers. Um, but to take on the full the full uh, philosophy, the full idea of discipleship and commitment and responsibility is hard, has been harder. Um, possibly because it's not, not a brand name that's known over here, but um, less Catholics, obviously, less less Christians in general, practicing Christians. 
for less religious society. But also I think it's just easier to find alternative ways of living in this country. You know, there's a social security system, you know, if you want to live on a low income, you know, you can get subsidised by the state and do it. <laughs> um, uh, it's not so individualistic, so that it's easier to be you know, a community of local people just because distances are smaller. I mean, in Hackney, distances are tiny, you know. It's very easy to walk and cycle around everywhere within, within the area. Um, pub, yeah, obviously public transport's there as well. Um, so we find it harder to sort of gather people to, in terms of the people who are part of the, who commit to the work to live in community houses. But nevertheless, there is a dis dispersed community and a movement, a network of people that, that are the, the bedrock of the core group, aren't they? You know, the bedrock of what we're doing, everything we do, um, and and it and it's growing. Um, however, yeah, there's still the community with the poor, which is uh, a very a very real thing, I think. Um, and yeah, some, I think I was being asked earlier, what, how would I see it as a critique of the society we live in? I mean. Uh, there is a very strong, there is a strong critique in the whole Catholic work of philosophy. Um, and in some ways, I think the most radical thing is the, the commitment to a community with the poor and voluntary poverty. Um, obviously, the the resistance also, uh, and you know, the willingness to go to jail, go to prison, is kind of you know, connected with the voluntary poverty a bit. Um, and the willingness to be on the, to be marginalised by a society we live in, um, and I guess one of the perspectives that it just don't come across anywhere else is in, term, in Christian terms, seeing that we talk. You know, there's been a lot of excitement over recent decades about liberation theology, and there's people saying, "What's a liberation theology for Britain?" or "What is an appropriate context, response from our context?" But the reality is that liberation theology comes out of a poor context of poverty and oppression, um, people seeking liberation from injustice and the liberation process ongoing, and liberation theology being a reflection on, on that. Our context isn't a context of poverty and oppression, our context is a context of privilege and riches, basically, and the question for us is not how do we liberate ourselves from oppression, but how do we repent from our privileges. Um, how do we live simply? How do we act in solidarity with the oppressed? Uh, and this is where the resistance also uh, comes in. It's a bit like looking at the situation of Jesus at his time. On he lived in Palestine, a small, poor country on the edge of the Roman Empire. That's a, that's a situation of oppression. But there are Christians in Rome, and they were living in a context of privilege uh, and riches. And what 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 was what response was called for from them at the time when Jesus was being crucified on the edge of the empire, as Jesus continues to be crucified by the empires that we live in. London is the centre of one of the global centres of you know the empires of today. Um, capitalism, you know, we've got London as centre of political power, military power, financial power, economic power. It's a global powerhouse. We know that. Um, and how do we live as Christians? How do we follow? How are we disciples in this context? Um, and I guess another thing is in terms of the our work, often our resistance work often focuses on peace issues, 
and uh, I guess a revelatory sort of understanding for me that I've come across in the Catholic worker is, you know, talked a lot about, in the, I've heard a lot in the past about if you want Pope Paul the sixth end, if you want peace, work for justice. So, you know, you think if people are poor, then they they might, you know, start fight, you know, fighting for what they need or whatever. But it's also the, there's a flip side to that, which is if you want to pr preserve privilege and injustice, prepare for war. And that actually, you know, the, the main source, of, one of the main sources of conflict in the world, or uh, violence, let's say violence in the world, is actually the, the armies of the rich countries um, make, accessing and preserving their access to resources um, to reserve our privilege. So the British armies going around the world creating the British Empire, um, British armies still, you know, in terms of actual active fighting, second only to the US, I think, um, always backing up the US in, in, in preserving that, maintaining our access to resources. You know, that's, that's stated explicitly in British and American foreign policy. It's about, it's about uh, preserving our interests, national interests, that's what it's about. It's not about defending peace or freedom, it's about preserving our national interests. Um, so that's where the resistance to violence, resistance to, to uh, our you know, nuclear weapons seen as the final step on, on the ladder of uh, escalation. Americans use the phrase escalation dominance. You know, you, you keep if if you if uh, someone opposes the level of force you're using at a low level, you step up to the next level. Nuclear weapons is the top level, um, and and you keep going. Um, and that's that's kind of part of the rationale for our focus on on the peace issues. Um, so I think that's a pretty fundamental critique of our way of life, really, as a first world in a first world country. That as Christians we can't be comfortable, we can't just live comfortably in a first world country and not be aware of. Um, yeah, Christ being crucified on the margins of empire, if you like, as well as in our own home environments. Uh, but we have th that bigger context is there too. Last week, um, when I was visiting outside the army showroom, a Nigerian woman came to us and she was Christian and she couldn't accept massivism either. Um, and she, she was saying that she's from around the area of Jos in Nigeria where the Christians and ethnic conflict which is also Christian Muslim conflicts in the area and yeah, I was I was very aware that it's a lot it's a lot easier to be pacifist living in Britain than it is if you're living in Nigeria I think um, but it's also I think uh, St Francis certainly sort of said in his time um, you know one of the reasons for not wanting to own anything was because if as soon as you own something you have to protect it um, and it's always true Thomas Merton I remember reading a passage of Thomas Merton saying he, you know, having a sort of insight of, of, of being terrified that by owning something he could be causing conflict and violence somewhere. <laughs> you know, someone tries to protect what what we've got. Um, and I think it's definitely true. I mean, I, I know like, even in the context of try, what we're trying to do with the Catholic worker, I mean, the anxiety of trying to protect what we've got you know um and when you when you have the less you have the less there is to worry about in that sense
Um, yeah, whatever. But I think there is a connection between the two. Um, and even on the level of, um, I think, you know, there's been reports about, you know, the more unequal societies are, the more vi the more violence there is, you know, more violent crime, whatever. Um, so that that's in there too somewhere. Um, and uh, um, I, mean, I think the, the well, it, I think you mean Al Qaeda rather than the Taliban, the threat to us, but. Um, I think the threat is minimal for one thing. I mean, I think the IRA were a much more serious threat. It's being hyped up. Uh, I'm not saying the Americans have created it, but I do remember reading in the summer of 2000, I had this bit of paper for a few years. Um, this was a report coming out of an American think tank, uh, the name which I've forgotten, but it had a lot of the Bush administration were members of it, basically saying, you know, we need a new enemy to create in order to to justify our military expenditure. And a lot of America, the American economy is based on military expenditure. Um, I think the, the threat is being hyped up and the threat level. Um, I'm not saying there isn't a threat, but that, that's part of it. Um, also, yeah, it is a lot of it is due to American, British, yeah, you know, foreign policy creating a lot of alienation in the Muslim world. I don't think there's much doubt about that, to be honest. Not saying that's an excuse. Obviously, I don't agree with what what they're doing. I don't. I can't say. You know, I'm certainly not keen on on their whole kind of belief structure of that kind of Islamism, if you like. Um, I think there's a lot of problems with it. But I don't think the solution is to go go and bomb the country. Um, the American military budget for next year is 600 and something billion dollars. Imagine if that kind of money was spent on, on promoting peace and development in the world and promoting non-violent solutions. I think that's one of the things a lot of peace groups over the years have talked about. Yeah, okay, we put a lot of money into the army, but if we put some fraction of that into actually training people in non-violence, uh, that would make a massive difference. Um, I think, you know, you can't say that non-violence will always work. You can't say violence always works either. I think that's part of it. You know, you have a spiral of violence. You know, I think we're probably stoking up more violence rather than rather than the opposite at the moment for the long-term future. Someone said, you know, it's all very well, you know, while America and Europe are the most powerful countries in the world, we can do go around throwing our weight around what comes about when we're not, you know, someone was saying to me earlier, China's coming, you know, how they're not far away. You know, there's a lot of the Chinese have got a lot of historic resentment against the West. What are they going to do when they're the most powerful nation in the world? Um, there are non violent ways of dealing with things, and if we put some serious resources into it, I think you'd see a lot more uh, effective solutions. And, and a lot, you know, a lot of effective changes have happened through non violence. If you look at I think, yeah, people say 20th century was a century of violence, more people got killed in wars, but it was also a century of non-violence. You know, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, the Philippines Revolution, Marcos got kicked out, the East European revolutions, which are basically non-violent. Um, you know, the suffragists, so many positive changes in the world happened through non-violence in the 20th century. Because we were learning, we were learning, we we're learning, we're still learning. Um, and it, I think it's getting more effective all the time. There's also another, I think, a connection with the privileges thing. Um, there's always Philip Berrigan, who is kind of uh, 
connected with the Catholic worker in the States um, said um, we won't have peace until those who want peace are as prepared to die for peace as those who want war are prepared to kill and die in war. And I think there's also that willingness to make sac people make enormous sacrifices for war. You know, soldiers go to war. Um, we, we back people. We back people who go to to fight the soldiers and who are willing to. We, you know, they're heroes when they when they die. And yet, I think if someone if something happens like that who's trying to do something non-violently and they get killed it's like horror you know what they were being foolish they were being silly what were they doing uh, I think comparison was made like if a woman who had children was in the army and went to war she would be a hero making sacrifices but if she did the same thing for some non-violent thing it would be you know you should stay at home and you know look after your children sort of thing and what you the, the, the different attitude that we have to be the, the it's a kind of a apocalyptic, you know, kind of like apocalyptic kind of attitude to war that this is the end of the world if we don't do this. Therefore, any sacrifice is worth it. When it comes to peace, you know, it's, it's not, we don't, we're not prepared to make the same kinds of sacrifices on the whole. Some people do, um, but it's often viewed as being foolish. Yeah, I understand that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't go around you know, spouting off to my family or, you know, whatever. It's, it's not, I think, you know, I, think I mean, my, I think my personal approach anyway, but I think uh, in general Catholic worker approaches, first, it's, well, first of all, it's about faithfulness. It's, it's not about success. Mm -hmm. It's not about we have to change, we have to succeed in changing the world. If we, it's about, for me, it's, it, you know, it's very much coming from my faith. So it's about, being faithful as a disciple, what does discipleship mean? It's not asking, you know, Mother Teresa said, not about being successful, it's about being faithful, and I very much believe in that. Um, and it's also, I think, starting from, a, as I said about personalism, taking personal responsibility to change, throw the data, changing the world one heart at a time, starting with myself. So starting with our own hearts and our own lives, what changes do we need to make in our own lives um, before we start telling other people, if you like, what they should be doing. Um, obviously we could talk about what's wrong with the world but that can be very abstract and that's again you know I, I do find a lot of the secular politics can be in that very abstract what's wrong with the world and somebody else should do something about it and actually the question is what should I do about it well for me anyway I, my, my starting point what should I do about it with my, in my own life having said that I do also think that people often say well where should I start and people argue about where you should start. Should you start political action? Should you start changing the personal life? Should you start with boycotting some shops? Or should you buy, start buying fair trade? Or should you start with whatever? And I always think, well, it doesn't really matter too much where you start. Just start, just do something. And, but don't also see that as see that as the beginning. That's the first step along the road. It's not the end. You know, wherever you start, just start there. And, but just think there's, there's also another step and another one. There's a lot to learn and a long journey to be had. But, you don't have to do it all at once, but yeah, just have to start somewhere and and not stop there. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think there is obviously poverty in this country. Um, a lot of it to do with, um, let's say. I mean, one thing is that the people who, are, if you, to be poor in a third world country, could just mean that you haven't got any money. You could actually be very bright, intelligent, motivated, etc. But your background is, doesn't allow you to access resources. 
think in this country, my experience of living in inner cities and working with a lot of different people is that whatever, I, on the whole, like I say, for example, I know some very dysfunctional families in, in parts of the East End. Say there's three or four or five kids, which often there is. Um, one of those kids will make it the one that's really together and, and they, they will end up you know, moving out of that. Some of them might end up, you know, dying young or on drugs or in prison or, or whatever. And some of them might be somewhere in the middle struggling to cope. And that's a lot to do with the, the social exclusion, um, the pressure. You know, there's apparently there's research in, you know, in areas where rich and poor live close together. There's higher mental health problems. And you can see how that comes about. I think I was actually going to say that I had this thought to do with the, the Taliban al-Qaeda, you know, and the people in, if people from other parts of the world are seeing the great riches in the West, how does that affect their, their sort of sense of stability? But anyway, coming back to this question, um, yeah, I mean, this is the reality of people also have, I think, I think part of it, in, I think in this country, you know, with the oldest industrialised nation, and I think what industrialisation does also is it destroys a sense of community and tradition and identity, and people don't have anything left uh, apart from, well, for most of us actually, we haven't got a lot left in terms of identity and tradition other than what the market provides. And if you haven't got money, you can't participate in the market, you can't go shopping, you can't buy stuff, you can't do that you know, that most common of recreational pursuits, spending money, you know. Um, and um, what have you got left? You've got very little left. Uh, I think it's interesting, you know, a lot of, it seems to be a lot of depression and anger among teenagers. And you know, I think alienation from parents, and you know, left left to the, the babysitter, the TV babysitter, you know, too much in these kind of families. Um, and uh, I think it's very difficult to survive um, on a psychological, spiritual level. You know, it's a spiritual desert as well, isn't it? It's kind of, you know, in terms of this in in Europe in, as well, I think. Um, so there's lots of problems there. I mean, you can't. Well, people do engage with, you know, these kind of issues on the states, but it's it's, it's not easy. Um, I, I mean, when I, I worked in a church in Canton, we sometimes used to have some of the at different times some of the local kids coming around to have a bit of fun, if you like, <laughs> at our expense. Um, you know, you try and engage with them uh, as well, and uh, hopefully, some of them might grow up through it. Others might. So it would just be progressing onto something more serious, I suppose. But um, it, it, it's not easy to deal with. I, I, that does remind me of a story. Uh, I was um, uh, I, I sent the anarchist book fair one time, and this guy says, "Oh, you're from the Catholic Worker. I'm from the uh, Freedom Anarchist Bookshop, Freedom Bookshop in Whitechapel, and we get all these Catholic workers delivered to us, and a bundle have been coming for decades, and we don't do anything with them." It's a very atheist kind of place, and you come and pick them up if you want. So I went down there to, to pick them up once, one time and got into an argument with this guy. He sort of thought God was the ultimate government, really, and therefore he couldn't be an anarchist and a, and a Christian or any other faith for that matter. And uh, we had a good discussion, actually. But then he didn't like it, the pacifist bit either. He was an anarchist, but not a pacifist. And he said, so what would you do if, um, 
if you had uh, a load of kids uh, outside your window and they were throwing stones and rocks at your window. I was like, oh, well, yeah, go and talk to them. I said, why? He said, because they're out there right now. (laughs) 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 I've got to go around their house and tell them I know where they live. I was like, okay. Which was quite funny. But, you know, it's a real question, you know. Um, uh, And I think also it's something, like all these things, I, I, I say I'm a pacifist. That doesn't mean... That means that's what I believe. If somebody was threatening me or threatening someone close to me, just, you know, I, maybe I would use violence. Maybe I would, I, I certainly think there are times when I would call the police because I, I'm not, we're not there yet. We're not, we can't do it all on our own. I don't feel like I'm there yet or we're there yet. Um, but it's, it's the attempt to, 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 do, to t- take it as far as you can. I think it's valuable. And, Okay, I have a bit of a line on this. I've, I've thought there's a different. I think there's a difference, like just justified. It might be just like talk about just war. It might be just what's just. Say for example, um, somebody hits me. Justice is interpreted as fairness. So somebody hits me, it might be quite fair and equal for me to hit them back. But does it mean it's a Christian thing? That's a separate. It's a different question. I think. You know, I think Jesus would have been, you know, justified and hitting somebody back or whatever, but he, he didn't. He actually said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He chose a different path. So it might be just, might even be justifiable. It's, you know, it could easily be just, those things are justifiable. Um, you know, we can justify ourselves in lots of ways, um, but is it the Christian thing? I think that there is a, in the Catholic tradition, um, you know, talk about the, the the monastic vows, the poverty, chastity, and obedience, which also another another way, another thing they're called uh, the, the evangelical councils. That um, uh, you know, I think Moot has some connections with the new monasticism thing. But talking about taking the evangelical councils out of the monastery and what do they mean in daily life? You know, what is poverty? What is chastity? Doesn't which isn't the same as celibacy. Or, but, and what you know, what is obedience to the gospels? What does that what does that mean in daily life? Um, and I think yeah, you know, some people have, would see. I think you, know, you can see certainly the non-violent direct action response to violence as um, as an evangelical evangelical council, which is to say that this is good news for the world. It's a sacrificial. It can be a sacrificial stand, but that's what we're called to as Christians. We're called to follow Christ, who took up his cross and said, "Take up your cross and follow me." It's the way of the cross. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's been people. It's been said in the past by lots of people that injustice is a form of violence or oppression is a form of violence, um, and therefore the other side of it, obviously, the, the privilege and inequality is part of that that violence, um, and is maintained by by violence. Um, I think, you know, I remember talking to some teenagers one time and just saying, you say, yeah, in the playground, if some kid comes up, bigger kids comes up to you and says, you know, give me uh, whatever it is. These days it's mobile phones. This was before the days of mobile phones, I think. There doesn't have to be actual violence for that to obviously be a violent situation. You might give them your phone because you don't want to get beaten up, you know. <laughs> um, the, th- the threat is enough. Um, and that's often the way it is, and then that gets, institu- gets institutionalised into the system um, to maintain to maintain the system. We are in one of the richest societies in history, you know, 
we're right up there in the top, even in the global, <coughs> even with England, you know, the southeast of England, London, it's just amazing to me looking around there, you know. I, I don't, you know, there's lots of there's lots of space for different people taking different stands and making different reactions. And, and Dorothy Day, you know, sometimes said, you know, well, you know, okay, you don't like where we're standing, but you know, we're standing. This is where we're standing. We teach students to take this stand. If you want to take a different stand, take a different stand. So, but as I was saying, you know, start somewhere, do something, <laughs> stand out against it somehow in the way that makes the most sense. What, whatever you can do, whatever, just you know, maybe for me, I started. I think the, the starting point for me in my kind of, if you like, my conversion journey for me, I was brought up a Catholic, you know, mainstream. I, I grew up in the suburban London, South Woodford. My dad worked for the Midland Bank just around the corner, <laughs> uh, Fred Noodle Street. Um, uh, you know, pet house, homeowners, etc., etc. And I grew up not questioning that. But um, you may have heard British Christians and Age of Hunger by Ronald Sider. Basically, talks about you know, if you take the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. In those days, you know, the Christian countries, that the Western historic Christendom, we're in the position of the rich man, and Lazarus is out the gate. What we're going to do about it? For me, I'm pretty tight anyway, actually. So it was quite. It was like the natural starting point for me was like, okay, I, I can live simply. I can start living simply, and that means I don't need to earn any money. I don't, I don't need to worry about money. Because I don't, you know, I can live comfortably within, I don't know, say in this country, unemployment, you know, income support levels. So whatever I might do, I'm not going to, I'm not actually worried about losing my job or losing my livelihood or whatever. Um, I actually made, a, I was a student at the time, so it was quite easy. But I made a decision not to get sucked into, you know, the, the normal kind of comfortable lifestyle of any that that people go along um, in that social context but it, I think I also made decisions to work and live with the poor it's a lot easier to live simply when you're with poor people because they don't have, they don't have money either to, to for yeah, socializing and entertaining and all the things that I find it quite difficult this is what I was saying about put experience of social exclusion myself I find it quite difficult to some extent with my family and certainly with some friends that I can't afford to do the things that they normally do and actually, I don't do very much in that way normally because I can't. I haven't got the money, you know. So that's not my life. I, I have to. I've had to develop a different way of. That was my natural starting point for me. But then I moved on to other. Things. I think location. Kieran, who someone mentioned earlier, realised. Uh, you know, he says as, as stated, and say there are three ma things that matter: location, location, and location. And he meant social location. You know, locate yourself among the poor. And that will give you a very different perspective on life. So you're talking about um, who your friends are and probably people you work with and all that. And I, I must, uh, I'm actually a Catholic priest. I didn't tell you that. Yet. It does affect my my social status anyway. Um, uh, but I remember the general sort of feeling you would get, say certainly somewhere when I was at seminary, whatever, if you're preaching about social justice issues or trying to bring these up would be, oh, you know, that's, you know, you, you have to be careful and people might get upset and all this sort of stuff. Well, I, I started off in, in Upton Park and Canning Town in the East End of London. And if I mentioned ra racism and injustice, I definitely got, you know, I got a lot of support, you know. I didn't get people, nobody, well, there were people. But I knew if, if, if there was one person who was, I didn't like what I was saying, they'd 
there'd be 50 who, who thought it was great, you know, because that was where I had, well, I didn't choose, I didn't make the choice to go there, but I was sent there because the bishop knew that I would, that would be a good place for me. But just that, as an example of how the different reactions, you, the difference of being among, in a community of people who are relatively poor, even in London, you know, and how much easier it is to be uh, living a life and trying to work for justice and, and peace and stuff. And also in London, I mean, you know, with the, I mean, Newham now, I think it's 67% ethnic minorities. So we're all a minority now, but anyway. Um, if you're talking about uh, you know, British foreign policy, you say, oh, well, you know, Britain should never have gone into Afghanistan or Iraq. They say, of course, you know, there's not a question about it. When I was living with a guy from Sri Lanka uh, in 2003, um, who I'd only just met, and he'd just come to England. It was quite, in, in, in many ways, quite conservative, quite conservative Catholic in many ways. But if we say to you know, what do you think, you know, you know the, the Iraq war? He said, oh, of course, it's American, going terrible Americans, you know. <laughs> it, it's the completely different, you know, the perspective difference is, is, was a shock to me. Has been a shock, and it's still, you know, it's still, it, I still get shocked sometimes with the difference of perspective. But it's a great learning curve, you know, in terms of how people, how the majority, the global majority, see the world, or even the local majority see the world, you know, um, as opposed to my background as much as anybody else's background, which is, you know, well, my background's probably what I call Essex class, but anyway, uh, the, uh, the, um, the well-off, the well uh, not very, not educated, but, what, but uh, you know, it's easy to get jobs in the city if you live in East London. Isn't it? Um, so, um, you know, it, it's pretty, it's an eye-opener, it's an eye-opener for me and for anybody, I think. You know, living with people from third world countries. Um, well, we we most of our money goes on the rent because we we have to rent the house. Um, but um, we had a, a friend of mine wanted to help us and would give us quite a big donation, about sixty thousand pounds to start with. Um, I belong to a religious order that they have also given um, uh, probably about thirty five thousand by now. Which basically is my living costs in theory, um, and uh, so what, because we have the newsletter, which I've got copies of here, a mailing list. Um, so we get basically it's given us time to build up the donations coming in on a regular basis. So when we're up to kind of nearly breaking even now, having used up some of that startup fund, um, and maybe. Sort of going further with, with that, but that's a basically in the, in the long run, it's going to be coming from the mailing list. Um, we're not a registered charity because of the political work, partly, and also because of the, the admin sort of side of things. We can't do um, also some philosophical sort of objections, I suppose. But um, uh, that's how we get our money. Basically, um, we don't need a lot in comparison. You know, we don't know no wages to pay or anything. But yeah, I mean, to some extent, I, I think just on a sort of analysis level, the American left tends to be libertarian stroke anarchist. The European left is basically socialist. Um, and, you know, you can see the benefits for that in, in many ways in Europe. <laughs> you can see there's the benefits of that. Um, and uh, I think um, 
yeah, I, I, I support, you know, lots of, I, I do vote, and you could say that I shouldn't vote, but I generally vote for the opposition, whoever they, <laughs> you know, I normally vote for the Green Party, I mean, you know, so I, I don't want to be voting for someone, I suppose, in, in many ways, I want to encourage those who are in power to think that there are people who want more radical solutions than the ones they're proposing. I think, I think uh, part of what we're doing in our Catholic worker philosophy in terms of in, a, in any kind of in a corporate society, whether it's US or here corporate in the business or corporate in the state, corporate state sense, it is that I think, you know, there is a tendency to, you know, with the welfare state and everything, there is a, ten, there is a tendency to expect the state to provide for everything and it just can't work. You know, people have to take personal responsibility you can't, the state cannot provide everything. There's no way that it, it can. Um, there's, you know, there's, there is no, there's always an unintended consequence of a government policy, you know, that you can't get away from. There's always probably an unintended consequence of everything in a way, but, but um, I think there has to be a personal responsibility, a personal response, especially you know, from a Christian perspective which I think is very real. I think it exists. I don't think it's a new idea in a way, but it's taken it a level further, I suppose, taking that personal responsibility onto the political level. Um, uh, you know, I think if you look at the caring professions, for example, or caring work in this country and charitable involvement, I think there's a much higher percentage of Christians than in the general population. So people, I think Christians, part of our discipleship, we do take it seriously about personal involvement. Well, let's take that a step further as well. Um, that doesn't negate that there are politi- there are some there are if you're going to have a politi- if you're going to have a government, I'd rather have a you know a socialist one than a neoliberal one. That's that you can't argue with that. I don't think. Thank you very much, Martin, for coming to speak to us. Thanks very much. I hope that was just.